1: Chicago in the 80s. It's uh, the middle of the AIDS crisis. House music was kind of just peeking out. But it was a very vibrant period for nightclubs. I discovered that on the north side of Chicago, there was a really interesting, vibrant club scene. That's Joey Ito, director of the
0: MIT Media Lab, describing his former life as a DJ in Chicago in the
1: 1980s. Our club, it's in the basement. They used to put sawdust on the floor because it would get pretty grummy. That vibrant
0: and grimy nightlife scene was very different from where Joey spent his daylight hours.
1: I was studying physics at University of Chicago, which was, I wouldn't call it a monoculture, but a lot of people with very similar values, very focused and intent on getting a good education, competing with each other. The contrast couldn't have been starker. Despite
0: its intellectual pretensions to openness, the university felt like a world closed off to new ideas. The nightclubs felt like a constant, vibrant culture clash of people, styles, and values. An open house that anyone could enter. And they did.
1: We had people like Iggy Pop and Run DMC and Madonna. You had the city aldermen, the drug dealers, the mafia, the goths, the bartenders. so really a community. It was an unlikely, chaotic group of people. There were always fights going on, you know, Iggy Pop would come and throw a bottle at one of our bartenders. It was the music that kept everyone in balance. The music at the time was everything from techno to industrial music to house music. The manager would say, you know, those kids on the dance floor, get them over to the bar to have a drink. And those college kids, get them onto the dance floor. And see the goth kids in the court, get them out of here, they're way too drunk. As a DJ,
0: it usually fell on Joey to get the people to do what the manager wanted. Want the hip-hop kids off the dance floor? Play something by The Cure. Want the house fiends to pick up the pace? Put on Farley, Jackmaster Funk. Want to ruin everyone's night? Joey was the puppet master, and his records were the strings he pulled.
1: The DJ, by playing the music, could get people to drink, could get people to come in, could get people to leave, and then you'd get the last call for alcohol, and the DJ was in charge of getting them all out of the room. And what I realized was that the music that you played was an essential component to the atmosphere of a club and also the culture of the club. Actually, puppet master is the wrong term. Joey was
0: more like a conductor and his unlikely rotation of music maintained the harmony between the very different groups of people who felt at home in his club.
1: There was a a loving community that was trying to protect the runaway kids, that were trying to make sure that the drug dealers didn't sell drugs to the people who had AIDS. And it contrasted starkly with the competitive monoculture of this community I was in in university.
0: This nightclub was the opposite of the kind of monoculture you see in a university or any kind of members-only club. A members-only club is exclusive. It keeps other people out, and the privileged few who can get in know what to expect. That's the attraction, but it's also the weakness. Those members will never be exposed to truly new ideas. And many scale companies seem like staid members-only clubs, set in their ways and closed to the world. They have a lot to learn from the wild diversity at Joey's nightclub. I wouldn't recommend scaling that nightclub. That's a recipe for chaos. But the vibrancy, the openness, the sharing of the dance floor, every company needs to take these ideas to heart. I believe no organization that's entirely closed or entirely open can scale as successfully as an organization That combines both. You got to have incredible talent at every position. It's like this huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it?
2: Such an idiot. And then you go back to this is totally going to be
3: amazing.
0: There are so many easy ways. So I have no idea what to do.
3: Sorry, we made a
4: mistake. But you have to time it right. right. Oops. Working as a three-bedroom apartment.
3: Stuff
2: that just seems absolutely nutballs. Ten years later, like, well, that's just how you do it. We haven't made it just how you do
0: it. This is Masters of Scale. We'll start the show in a moment. After a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business.
3: I woke up in the middle of the night because... I had this nightmare that we were front page news that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot.
4: <laughs> That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. And she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card.
3: We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset The prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business, when we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built.
4: Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight have multiple Plan Bs.
0: I'm Reed Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, partner at Greylock, and your host. And I believe. No organization that's entirely closed or entirely open can scale as successfully as an organization that combines both. Many organizations, businesses, government agencies, universities are essentially closed, top-down, hierarchical, members only. Speak out of turn, and you'll be asked to leave. You have to be part of the in-crowd to contribute. However, in organizations and communities that are open, there is no in crowd. Anyone can join and contribute. Ideas are judged on their merit. Think of open competitions, open source code, or even the proverbial town square. Openness always invites a bit of chaos. You run the risk of losing control, but it's a risk well worth taking because openness also breeds innovation. New points of view can surface from anywhere and bring novel solutions to problems. Knowing precisely which aspects of your organization should be open and which should be closed and to what degree will set you on a path to rapid scale. I wanted to speak with Joey Ito about this because Joey has been instrumental in the growth of my own ideas about networks, and openness. Joey is an entrepreneur, investor, and theorizer who spent much of his career championing radically open systems from creative commons to cyber currency. Joey also railed against established top-down institutions from governments to banks to universities. Six years ago, Joey accepted a role inside one of these famously closed universities. As director of the famed MIT Media Lab, Joey's evolved from a staunch believer in radically open communities to a nuanced advocate for bringing openness to previously closed organizations. Joey and I come at the idea of openness from different angles, but both our approaches aim to drive innovation at scale and involve many, many people along the way. The way that I normally introduce Joey is college dropout,
1: director of the MIT Media Lab. It's a quick way to help people begin to understand him. I dropped out of college three times. Well, actually, I dropped out of college twice in a doctorate PhD program once. It felt like there was more I could learn online than I could learn in an academic program. Joey dropped out to become immersed in that nightclub community.
0: It was not the first radically open community that Joey had become involved in. As a high school student, back in Tokyo, Joey had worked in his father's research lab. It gave him access to computers and the early Internet.
1: At night, I would program video games and also break copy protection on software on the Apple computer. Yes, you heard him right. Joey's teenage years were spent
0: breaking copyright on software. But the thing that really excited Joey about these new technologies were the communities that were forming around them. Online bulletin boards were just emerging, and people from across the world engaged in conversations they could never have in their everyday lives, with people in other countries of higher social status. These communities cut through hierarchy. They flattened the playing field. And it's fair to say that not everyone appreciated that. Joey tested this
1: newfound access in his Tokyo high school. Once I got into the university networks, I realized that you know, a lot of these professors who wrote the textbooks that we were using would answer email if you said, Yo, I'm a high school kid in Japan and I just read your textbook and I have a question about this thing. And my physics teacher hated it because I would come in and say, well, but I talked to the author of the book and he says, you're wrong. And so I got a C in physics. He
0: may have barely scraped through his physics class, but Joey took a lot of lessons from those open online communities. After fully immersing himself in Chicago's club scene, Joey returned to Tokyo to open a nightclub of his own. But technology kept creeping back in. And you go to Tokyo, but then you start thinking, okay, I should maybe think about the technology business. Mm -hmm. What led you to start thinking startups, venture capital? Mm -hmm. What
1: what led you into that direction? And I want to just establish for the record that I am not even close to the level of strategic that you are. <laughs> um, I just kind of stumble around, you know? And so- Geniusly I, <laughs> stumble around, <but> yes. <laughs> well, well, I, I'm aware of my opportunities, <laughs> yes. I just don't plan them. Um, and so I went back to Japan, had a nightclub, was doing events, was interested in media, so I was working for NHK, the broadcasting company, and was just kind of running around. And I, and I did computer networks, but just out of curiosity. Joey's curiosity and his open collaborative network of like-minded tech pioneers
0: meant he soon had skills that were in great demand, particularly from big companies finding their way in the new frontier of the Internet. Joey would need to speak the language of business if he was going to work with these top-down, prestige-driven organizations. He set up a consulting practice.
1: Well, I didn't know how to run a company, but I set it up anyway. And at the time, I remember going to negotiate, you know, office lease and they said well you know what about the security deposit and how did uh, and like I'm going to have to talk to my lawyer and I was like mom what is a security deposit
0: Joey may not have understood the fine details of office leasing but he and his hacker friends were landing contracts with big clients like IBM and Sun Microsystems their open community had accelerated their learning and they are among the few people with the skills that the big institutions needed Another company they worked with was a fledgling internet listing site called Yahoo.
1: Joey and his team offered to set up Yahoo's Japan service. And we went over and I, you know, people were like sleeping under the desks and, and I got a deal. It was a, a verbal commitment that I would get 50% of Yahoo Japan in exchange for setting it up, doing the servers.
0: Joey told his friend, SoftBank founder Masayoshi-san, about this verbal commitment
1: with Yahoo. And I was telling him about, oh, wow, there's this Yahoo thing, it's really cool, and This is when I learned about sort of Masa style. He was like, he immediately flew to California and said to Yahoo, we're going to invest in your company, and if you don't let us invest, we'll invest in a competitor. And I don't know if there were any competitors. And he came back to Japan and said to me and my gang, well, you're clearly not going to get 50% of Japan. We're going to fund it, but we'll give you 1%. Hearing Joey tell this story, you might believe Masa
0: style consists of winning at any cost, but Masa may have also realized that Joey would have trouble making the Yahoo deal work on his own. Joey knew how to build a nightclub community, and he knew how to forge a loose alliance between brilliant hackers with big ideas. But he also needed his mom's advice on a security deposit. The fact that he was satisfied with a verbal agreement from Yahoo underlined
1: this naivete, as did Joey's next move with Massa. And I looked at them and said, you guys are a bunch of software distributors. You don't have any technical people. How are you going to build this thing? He says, well, you guys can build it. And I said, okay, well, screw your 1%. I want, I think I can't remember what it was, like $20,000. And he was like, okay, fine. And so we, we built the first Yahoo Japan beta server. It took us a long time to get paid, which was annoying. But then Yahoo made a ton of money. That missed opportunity taught
0: Joe at least two lessons about working within the established hierarchy of large,
1: closed organizations. I realized later I should have taken the 1%. But I also realized that without capital and without the ability to execute at a corporate level, I'd just be that kid with the ideas. For Joey, it wasn't enough to
0: be that kid with the ideas. He wanted to take his ideas and shepherd them into becoming a reality. The best way to do that? Learn to harness the power of the closed corporate world that Joey and his hacker friends had scorned. Mm -hmm. So Joey set up a consulting business that would tap the freewheeling new ideas that were burgeoning on the internet, ideas about engaging a wider audience, communicating freely, and making them accessible to all, and then present them
1: in a way the closed business world could understand and run with. We built a bunch of businesses. I would say that if it weren't for the fact that I was working with a guy who had been in in business for 10 years, who knew how to operate a business, it probably would have taken me a lot longer before I actually had something that made money at scale. Alongside his consulting practice, Joey both joined and created some of the
0: online communities that emerged in the 1990s. Many of Joey's early communities skewed heavily towards complete openness with anonymous users and a rule-free ethos. Joey thrived in this kind of chaos
1: But even he experienced the downside. First of all, it started with a mailing list called NetSurf, where we would all share our links about interesting websites that we'd found. And at some point, some slightly troll-like people were hanging out in the mailing list. And I said, you know, you guys, this is like my living room. Get out of here. Don't behave like that. They said, this isn't your living room. And I said, but it's on my server. I don't care. This is a public space. I can say what I want. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird because I've created it. I'm running it. But all right, fine, whatever. You know, I've lost control of this mailing list. So to escape the trolls, Joey set up a channel on Internet Relay Chat, or IRC,
0: a network of servers that allowed users to chat in real time. It was
1: still open, but he could kick out the trolls. I said, you know what, I'm going to call the channel Joey Ito, because then there will be no doubt that I'm in charge. So he created a channel called Joey Ito, and, and it was just my friends. But while the troll problem had been solved, it was clear Joey wasn't quite as much in control as he thought he would be. But I remember a time when somebody came into the chat room and said, so what does Joey Ito think? And I said, well, I think that, and not you, the channel. And so then I realized that, you know, even if you name the thing your name, it's still not your place. What Joey learned was a
0: classic lesson of the limits of radical openness. When you create a very open lawless system, you foster open conversations, but you also create a safe place for trolls, people who act in bad faith to disrupt a system and drive others away from using it. It's a phenomena that almost every open platform grapples with today, from social media channels to Wikipedia. But the trolls on the Joey Ito chat room didn't deter the real Joey Ito from his love of all things open. He saw the risk of opening up. People will express their own views. You may lose control of the conversation, but he also saw huge benefits, innovation, inclusiveness, the wisdom of crowds. And we'll hear how Joey leaned into the movement toward open platforms right after the break. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business.
3: There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down.
4: We're back with a Seran of Capital One Business. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook.
0: Before the break, we heard how Joey established himself as a go-to internet consultant in Tokyo in the 1990s, building Yahoo Japan, among other websites. After a series of ups and downs familiar to all founders, Joey was in a position to make investments of his own. It was the early 2000s, and blogging had just emerged as a disruptive force in media and politics. Joey saw in blogging the same radical open ethos he'd seen on the bulletin boards of the early internet. Blogging leveled the playing field between everyday people and the closed world of established media companies. There was an unfettered sharing of ideas that anyone could participate in, and it was around this time that our paths first crossed. I was at PayPal at the time. That was when you were saying, I'm convinced that there's this entire new kind of web tool revolution, the kind of revolution of communities, of networks, of social identity. I had thought a lot about social identities, but I hadn't thought about the open network side of these things. You were like, well, there's this really great company, six apart. We should invest in this one together. And I was like, sure, why not?
1: The key word for me and probably why you ended up building more successful companies than me, It was really community. So I was into chat rooms, into bulletin boards, and, and into social media, but from the perspective of a bunch of people having a conversation. Healthy communities foster open conversations.
0: And I did think about community in this respect, but Joey is right. It wasn't a focus on openness that helped me build scale with LinkedIn. Rather, it was my belief in the value of building networks that are open in some respects, but closed in others. LinkedIn was an open community in that anyone could join, but it was also a collection of closed communities. We required real name signups, and we only allowed you to connect to people you know and who agree to the connection. We held to the balance of open and closed that we believed would foster trust in a business community. It's this trust that attracted more people to contribute and fueled scale. In any company or community, you have to strike this balance between open and closed. Another organization that has famously struck this balance is TED. For years, TED was an expensive, elite, invitation-only conference. So when they first put their talks online for free under a Creative Commons license, it was a radically open move. June Cohen, one of the executive producers for Masters of Scale, was previously the executive producer at TED. She led the charge to put TED Talks online, and June also launched TED's Open Translation Project, which allowed volunteers around the world to subtitle the talks. She has a story that perfectly encapsulates this balance between open and closed systems. I asked her to share it.
2: When you talk about open systems, I think people often picture them as a mosh pit, you know, where everyone chaotically does whatever they want. But the most effective open systems usually have a lot of hidden structure. So our translation program at TED was very open, but it wasn't a mosh pit. We put a lot of structure in place to support great work and also to prevent mischief.
0: The potential benefits were clear to June from the start. Still, it was a scary move.
2: It's one thing to believe hypothetically in the power of crowdsourcing, but it is a totally different thing to put your speaker's words in the hands of people you don't know who speak languages you don't understand. So the day the translation program launched, we got a panicked message from one of our Polish translators. He told us that the Polish subtitles on five talks had been mistranslated. They were just gobbledygook. Well, it turns out that those five bad translations were actually done by a professional Translation house we had hired to help us launch. It looks like they had just run them through an auto translator. They probably figured, oh, it, it's Polish. They'll never know. As it turns out, the only truly bad translations we ever experienced came from professional translators. They were caught and corrected by our volunteers within 36 hours of launch. Why? Because the volunteers were in it for more than just money, they cared. And that's the power of openness.
0: TED's Open Translation project scaled to more than 20,000 volunteers working in 120 languages. It paved the way for TED's international growth, including a TV show in Japan hosted by none other than Joey Ito. And to me, that story in which the scary-sounding volunteers saved TED from the paid professional translators Encapsulates so much about the way open and closed systems can join forces and play to each other's strengths. These ideas about openness were gaining momentum in the early 2000s. Wikipedia launched in 2001. Creative Commons issued its first license in 2002. And Joey was one of the earliest commentators on the movement. In 2003, Joey put out his famous essay, Emergent Democracy. It described how loose networks of individuals were using blogging and
1: other online tools to affect change in society and politics from the ground up. It was really this idea that we would see an emergent ability to to cause action, to think as a community. It was kind of collective action um, and collective intelligence. But back then it seemed very rosy. Like if we could just connect everybody and get everybody the opportunity to say everything they want, we'd have direct democracy in the world become peaceful and everybody would realize that all people were good and then game on.
0: Joey saw the evidence all around him for the benefits of collective action and direct democracy. And he became a champion of all things open. He joined the boards of Creative Commons, the Mozilla Foundation, and the Open Source Initiative. As an investor, Joey placed bets on startups that championed bottom-up initiatives, Kickstarter, Flickr, Twitter. You can probably see why Joey's path and mine kept crossing. We co-invested in a number of companies, and we agreed in the opportunity of open platforms. But we had a fundamental disagreement because I believed the biggest opportunity lay with closed networks, or mostly closed networks, ones that required a real identity and connected you only to people you know. Our views on open versus closed networks have evolved over the intervening years, as some of our expectations have been confirmed, some confounded, and some exploded. As you'll hear from this exchange, it is a subject we can still talk about endlessly.
1: I think that your notion of having closed networks and trust as a key piece was prescient of the issues that would come. I think the obvious truth is to create innovation,
0: you want to have as much breadth of allowing the innovation, e.g. open networks as possible. But then the question is, as a business creator and as an investor and as a capitalist, Mm -hmm. you want to actually capture as much of that value. So you want to tend to be more closed. We were just in constant conversation. And I think mostly we kind of said, look, we'll both bet and invest on both sides and we'll see how it See how it plays out.
1: Yes, and, and we know how it
0: turned out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, the, the, the tightly uh, bound networks uh, yeah. had a faster growth towards uh, equity value, although maybe impossible without the open systems.
1: I think the open protocol lowered the barrier to competition, first of all, and allowed a kind of scaling.
0: Well, you wouldn't have been able to create those new companies without having the platform be sufficiently open that they could all go create. So yeah. you know, anything from Google to Netflix to Facebook wouldn't be created unless the internet was open. That's and right. So, and so you need that baseline open system mm-hmm. to create all that value, which is the value of the open systems. One of the reasons we still talk about this is because the dynamic between open and closed systems is constantly shifting. Open systems are great for idea generation And evolution but if you're going to scale rapidly any of these ideas a closed system or at least tight rules often works best and the organizations that stand to gain the most by embracing some openness are those that are traditionally and staunchly closed corporations universities government agencies so what happens if you're working in one of these closed systems how can your company harness the power of radical openness without descending into a disorganized free-for-all. An expert in this area is Megan Smith. Megan was chief technology officer for the White House under President Obama. She has a number of tactics that harness the power of radical openness, and she's put them to great effect in some of the most complex organizations on the planet. One innovation close to her heart is the Solutions Summit. She helped plan for the United Nations the summit aims to unearth solutions for the UN sustainable development goals.
5: And so we said, what if we just put up a web page and say, world, what do you already have that solves these goals that's either working now or promising? And so we posted that on the U.N. site, and then we blasted an email pointing at it through lots of ministries of science and technology and through all the fellows, like Ashoka Fellow, Ted Fellow, all our colleagues, and out went the word. And in came 800 submissions from 100 countries in two weeks.
0: The results that came from opening up this traditionally closed system were astounding.
5: And we saw extraordinary things. A team flying drones to plant a billion trees a year. A team teaching law in prison in Uganda because thousands of people had gone to jail with no representation. Now lots of people, in fact, thousands are getting themselves out of jail. There's a guy named Ben Uhura who's building a floating fab lab in the Amazon we have four hundred indigenous tribes that come indigenous people who are there with their incredible capabilities around bio information and and indigenous knowledge that could merge together with you know modern machine tools and and capabilities. And the only rules were we want breadth of ideas and we want breadth of humans because the world is full of lots of talent. And so we got that.
0: It was Megan Smith who invited Joey to apply for the position he now holds the director of the MIT Media Lab. The Media Lab was founded in 1985 by Nicholas Negroponte, and for decades, the lab has been a hub of cross-disciplinary innovation. The Media Lab also has an unusually close relationship with the corporate and startup worlds, which means that MIT-born innovations frequently make their way into the hands of consumers. Technologically, it was right up Joey's alley.
1: I didn't know anything about The Media Lab and I really had no intention of ever of being in an academic institution. But I came here to do an interview. And we spent two days just meeting students and faculty and staff. And it turned out to be still probably the most interesting two-day series of conversations I ever had. And I said, if I can hang out with these people every day, I'll do anything to do that.
0: This was the kind of institution Joey could fully embrace. A place that described its work as anti-disciplinary was always going to appeal to Joey. It was almost like coming home. Just like the clubbers in Chicago or the voices from far-flung corners of the globe in those early days of internet bulletin boards, the Media Lab was a community of open voices, freely sharing ideas. How much did you see in that first two days in the media lab that it reminded you of the dj
1: dance floor so that's really an interesting question because i thought of the parallels actually the reason i dropped out of college to go to the dance floor was because i love the community and this is a community i want to be in this is the lost tribe that i've been looking for and if it means doing operational stuff that i never really thought was my forte um fine the Media Lab
0: melded the powers of the closed institution with the powers of an open network. But Joey wanted to make the Media Lab even more open. He wanted to crack a door
1: and bring the world in. I realized coming from the Internet that there are people doing cool stuff all over the place. Ted was publishing their videos all over the place. And so it was very counterintuitive to me to have something be closed. So it felt like a computer that wasn't connected to the Internet.
0: Joey set out to connect the metaphorical computer of the Media Lab to the Internet of the world. He knew that any closed organization would run the risk of stagnation. So Joey started stirring things up at the Media Lab with a series of open programs, including open competitions, open classes, and an advisory council and director's fellows program that brings outside voices regularly into the lab.
1: Instead of just being a closed community, trying to make it an open community was one of my areas of focus. A lot of that also is about a culture change in the lab. But I think, you know, the students already had that intuition, right? And I think they were already kind of breaking the rules and posting stuff onto YouTube. So a lot of it was just unlocking stuff that just wanted to happen.
0: Joey was taking his philosophy of radical openness and supercharging what it could do by harnessing the power of a top-down institution. The irony isn't lost on him. You said to me, I remember this conversation, We said, you know what my career is? My career is breaking monopolies, right? Like it's, it's kind of going up against the monopolies because the telcos actually didn't want an internet. They wanted a, oh, no, no, no,
1: like we control everything and you pay us for it versus permissionless innovation. We were fighting against some pretty awful institutions like the telcos who were, to me, trying to prevent this dream of open access to everyone at low cost. This
0: tension between the radically open and the radically closed does not need to be a zero-sum
1: game. And we were beating up mainstream media like they were the evil empire. But then we realized, wait, we're killed. they're going about to die. So the reason I'm on the New York Times board is kind of like you're jumping in to do CPR. I didn't mean to really hurt you that bad. You know, we were just punching you. But now, in retrospect, this kind of institution bashing that we were doing, now I'm on the institution side realizing that we need institutions, and so there's this kind of interesting healthy balance. So I feel I'm spending almost as much time trying to protect our important institutions, while at the same time, I guess we often call this a radical flank, but using the somewhat radical, disruptive people to make sure that the people in the institutions are thinking about innovation and about the future, and not sitting on the laurels. Getting the open-close balance right
0: is the key challenge, and it is different for each specific situation. How do we tweak the level of openness in any organization to ensure the
1: greatest impact? Here's Joey's view from his seat at the Media Lab. It's a very complex system with all these parts interrelated. But I think the key point is that you need to be in conversation across engineers and social scientists, across Silicon Valley businesses and the regulators. You actually, in fact, have to work together, not only to think about and understand the problems, but to forcefully come out with things like open letters, with going to companies and questioning their work, and actually building examples of things that work properly. This is what I learned from Arab Spring. You know, hey, yay, finally, emergent democracy is here. Oh, no, a lot of people are suffering. And so this time around, we have to be a bit more intentional in trying to get the arc to bend towards justice rather than just sort of leave it up to the market and a whole bunch of hackers.
0: Only by continuing to have these open conversations can we keep pace with the shifting challenges we face. And our companies, our institutions— and our societies. It is a conversation we all need to be radically open to having, and no one should be closed off from. I'm Reid Hoffman. Thank you for listening. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business.
4: For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit capital1.com/businesshub. That's capital1.com/businesshub. Masters of Scale
0: is a Wait What original. The show is recorded on site in California and produced at the studio inside SY Partners in New York. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our producers are Chris McLeod, Adam Skuse, Jenny Cataldo, Dan Kedmy, Jordan McLeod, and Ben Manilla. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Original music by Allison Leighton Brown. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Chris Shea, Bob Safian, Elisa Schreiber, David Sanford, Saida Sepieva, Christina Gonzalez, Sarah Sandman, and Lauren Passell. Visit mastersofscale.com to find a transcript for this episode. And be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter.